0: Continuing where we left off the other evening, the method that's being presented to you in the hall, anapanasati, sometimes translated as full awareness, with breathing. If you have Taoist leanings, you could call it the way of the breath. It means using the fact that we breathe something so ordinary yet so significant, profound as a vehicle to get free, to help us get free. The breath itself doesn't do it but it can be an enormous help. Um, If you recall, the actual sutra of the Buddha deals with four foundations of mindfulness. And there are 16 sets of four. I mean, four sets of four which comprise 16. And uh, one way to work with it is each is a a lesson in learning about the nature of life using breathing. Um, And there also is a, a way called the condensed method, which is perhaps more suitable for most of us in the modern world, and also probably you don't have the patience or interest in working through all 16. One way to to understand it, it's not the only way, as I mentioned, there are so many different uh, ways in which the same translation is interpreted, is to see it as a progression. Um, The condensed method, without cheapening the essence of the whole teaching, uh, reduces it to two. Two, and at a certain point, even the two are one. But let's leave it at two. So, the first one is, um, as you recall, is what we've been doing and encouraging you to do every day since we began Sunday evening, which is to bring awareness to the whole body, experience the sensations in the whole body, and as part of that, to experience breath sensations, which are inseparable from bodily life. And so we're giving exclusive attention to a a sitting, breathing body, we're just limiting it to the sitting practice for the moment. Um, There's so much that can be said about this sutra, I'm going to try and uh, clarify some things that came up during the discussion groups. One thing, it is not visualizing the body. Uh, visualization can play a role in as a Dharma practice. It's something that is used tentatively since the mind likes to make up images already. Many of them don't go anywhere or they lead to destruction, suffering. So some wise teachers way in the past have devised ways of imagining that can be more productive, that can help us come to dropping even those images. But this particular approach that we're uh, pursuing is not an image of the body, it's not envisioning the body as this, that, or the other. It is free of imagination. And if you read, uh, it's about the body, and that's the first foundation of mindfulness. Very, very important for us. because Essentially, that's what we've been doing for a few days. Um, what is being asked of us is not that we have an image of the body or that we have ideas about the body, but quite the contrary. Uh, Are we willing to establish a new relationship to the body, one which is raw, naked, without preconceptions? It has nothing to do with ideas. It has to do with the raw sensations. That just by being alive, right now as you're sitting, you can feel something, whatever you feel that 's fine, so we 're not limiting that if you 're let 's say at the nostrils or the tummy, much more common that you 're also attending to sensations. You feel the air touches the nostrils and goes out and you feel it on the very sensitive uh, upper lip or the uh, nose linings, or you feel the abdomen rising and falling, and that creates some stirrings in the body and you feel that. Only here what we're doing is the entire body, it's open. And we're not limiting the breath sensations to, we're not localizing it, we're not focusing it and narrowing it down, but rather uh, opening up to the whole body sitting and breathing. It's a sitting, breathing body and that we're sensitive to. And some of, some of the questions showed struggle. You're trying hard to grasp every little sensation in your right big toe or in your left ear. Uh, it's, first of all, it's too hot to practice that way. <laughs> uh, just whatever is available to you is fine. You're just sitting and you feel what's there. Because uh, the essence of Vipassana, the seeing, it's a, a, a lot of it rides on the art of pure observation. That is a quality of seeing. That's what Vipassana means. Clear seeing. Extraordinary seeing. Accurate seeing. Insight. Seeing into. Uh, depends on uh, pure observation, which is not colored by ideas or values. I like, I don't like, our conditioning, in short. So we're developing that. That's central. Can't, can't, without that, it would be like having a beautiful car, but no gasoline in the motor. That, that's, it's, you can't develop wisdom without paying attention. can't get free without paying attention. It doesn't drop from a cloud. So what we're learning now, if you envision the body, visualize it, some of you are doing it and you feel good. There are lots of visualizations that in the short run enable us to feel good because we envision something and the words evoke positive feelings in us and we're happy. Uh, in the short run, that might seem, well, why not do that? If you want to, if you insist, but you're not going to be developing this crucial skill of, of direct, of a relationship that's intimate with whatever it is you're attending to. A very great Japanese master, Dogen, was asked, What is awakening? What is enlightenment? I prefer the term awakening. And he said, He gave a very simple and uh, beautiful answer to be intimate with all things. Uh, that means all things, inside, outside. Well, how do you do that? Do you go up and hug a tree? Uh, is that what he means by intimate? What he means is, it's the mind that keeps separating us from our experience. We're, we're experiencing a lot of life through yesterday's, we're seeing it through yesterday's eyes. You're seeing it through your conditioning, I'm seeing it through mine. Uh, and when we come to the body, what we're, we're learning, uh, the, the way the one translation, the body in the body, strange use of English or the body in and of itself is just those bodily sensations uh, free of any conceptualization or images or pictures so that's a crucial skill we're developing so uh, at first it may be frustrating if you haven't been uh, instructed to look at it that way and encouraged to keep doing it and it may not make you happy at first now first of all don't try so hard it's not what we're trying to Uh, envelop the entire body, the instructions, we have used words like inhabit the whole body. What I mean is bring awareness inside. It's like living inside the body. Now, so the body is the first uh, tetrad in the Satipatthana Sutra. Obviously extremely important. So much of our life is oriented towards caring for this body and learning about it, feeding it and washing it and giving it rest, and using it, and watch it as it ages, as it grows ill, and as it dies. We feel we are the body. Okay, so it's quite important. Now, just to sit, if you recall the instructions, just to sit and experience the breath sensations, wherever you feel them, in the whole body. Uh, As you do that more and more, what happens is a process of intimacy develops between you and your own body. Uh, the breath. Is, when I say body, I include breath sensations. I don't want to have to keep saying it over and over. But in this method, it's the breath sensations that are really featured in the context of the whole body. Okay. Um, what that means is, what would intimate mean? It would mean it's not mediated by an idea. It's just what you feel. Uh, now, in the process of doing that. When I say intimate with the body, you get to know... Uh, many of us are cut off from our bodies. Either we've lived a lot of our life in our head, have been very successful, gotten rewarded and paid for having a giant brain, becoming famous and all kinds of things, and as a result, the body's been neglected. The body is can be neglected for any number of reasons. That's hardly the only one. And we're not in touch with the body, except when it goes something goes wrong and then we have to hand it over to an expert to fix it. Um, so you may not know your body very well. Now, I don't mean taking a course in anatomy or physiology. I mean an intimate experience of just bodily life. Um, just this. Just whatever it is. And as you do this more and more, and as the mind settles down, it becomes more calm and more clear. Uh, a whole world opens up. The body is a very rich place. And if you don't hold yourself to special concepts like chakras and nadis and uh, all kinds of language, also useful, medical language, temporarily, just temporarily, it's not forever. Some of you work in the medical field. Just get to know the body in in an innocent way. Beginner's mind, don't know mind, just and as you as you go deeper and deeper, uh, the separation between you and the body starts to uh, dissolve. The separation is caused by thinking, by ideas. When Dogen says to be intimate with all things, how do we separate ourselves from life? Through thinking, typically. Like if you're doing walking, how to, how to be intimate with the walking? Uh, you're walking, and let's say you bring awareness to the body, and then the mind starts thinking about someplace else, something else. And the walking can be beautiful. Someone looking out thinks you're a professional dancer. In the meantime, you're in Toledo, Ohio. The, the body, body is here, but something's going on in Toledo, Ohio that's much more interesting. Anyone from Toledo, Ohio? No one? Good. Then I can go. No. I don't know if anything is going on there. But anyway, that was uncalled for. No. Wrong speech. It's the heat. So so that skill is being developed. It's very useful in life. It's very practical. As you get to know the body, for example, this may seem small, but um, when I recommended that certain of the people who practice with us in Cambridge see different uh, physicians, chiropractors, etc., Body people do body work, uh, massage therapists and acupuncturists. Uh, I got thanked once by uh, someone who said, "I'm happy you sent me uh, send me these people." Now this person had no shortage of, of uh, clients. I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Because when you ask them a question, they can really answer about the body. In fact, they go on and on about it. You know." <laughs> and I said, well, "And they turn out to be vipassana students." Well, it's not quite throbbing. It's sort of in between ache, ache, and. <laughs> On a scale of 10, the doctor's sitting there. He doesn't even have to do anything. It's about a 6 point. No, it's about a 7, I think. So that can be a benefit because also when that happens, we don't emphasize the healing benefit of awareness in the body and of the breath because this is a wisdom path. No one's against health. That would be idiotic. Uh, But it's so easy to get distracted the truth is, just simply following the breathing in the context of the whole body, as you're aware of the body breathing, uh, it's soothing to the body, especially as you settle down. Some of you haven't settled down yet. Or, and this may be true, it isn't the method for you. No methods for everyone. But you have to give it a try to find out. OK, so what we've been doing is giving exclusive ten- uh, attention to a sitting, breathing body, not at war with anything else. Thoughts come and go, moods come and go, birds chirp, trucks go by, people make sounds in the hall, we're hot in the hall, we're comfortable in the hall. All that's going on. But what is featured is uh, the the body in this particular posture uh, breathing, and uh, I have to use words, but it isn't words. It's the raw, naked sensations which you're experiencing. As you, as that starts to be smoothed out and become more continuous, perhaps you've experienced it already, the the breath is interposed between the mind and the body in some very beautiful way. And if you just attend to the breath, as as it becomes more calm, it conditions the body. It conditions the mind. You might find that the body is a little bit more comfortable. You might find that when you're uh, attending to the whole body, there's a, some discomfort somewhere and you can't h- help, but feel it as you breathe in and breathe out. And suddenly you may feel the breath sensations are in that part. You're not sending it there and it helps, seems to help a little bit. So, um, but here's why it's such a, a wonderful, uh, u- its use in meditation is that by attending to the breathing, just being aware of it, not trying to make it be calm. Remember, we're learning this attitude of allowing and receiving. We'll go into that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, We're letting the breath happen, not making it happen. There's no ideal as to how the breath should be. And from the point of view of this style of practice, there's a good reason why we don't want you to improve the quality of the breathing. We want you to learn how to leave things alone. We want you to learn how to let the breath breathe itself. Okay. So as that's happening uh, and as more and more you become aware of it and it becomes more continuous you can feel that the quality of the breathing changes. You're not trying to do it. It's a byproduct of awareness. And you might feel the body more relaxed. You, certainly you feel the mind uh, starts to become less wild. Now, officially, this practice is a samadhi practice. It's not officially, in quotes, a wisdom practice. And yet, wisdom is learned here, too, or it can be. For example, if you haven't, don't worry. Uh, Maybe you will in the future. More and more, as you dwell in the breathing, establish yourself in the rhythm of the breathing, and it becomes more continuous. Of course, what it brings with, with it is more tranquility, calm, uh, steadiness, a clarity of vision, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, but as it does that, something else is happening which is in the family of wisdom, even though we, we don't uh, talk about it at this stage because we, we're emphasizing coming back to this one uh, field of energy. And what that is, is for example, don't some, you've all been practicing for a while or you wouldn't be here. Uh, I don't know if you've seen yet how much in, the enormous amount of energy that the mind squanders, the unexamined mind, endlessly repeating certain thoughts. I'm not saying just here, and all day long, and even in our dreams, the night shift comes on and makes up stuff <laughs> called dreaming. You know, they have a role. You know, like this guy didn't get it during the day. He can't. He doesn't get it. Let's. We'll have to make symbols and all. We'll make it. You know, like a. T- a tiger, or a, you know, a, an ant is crawling. There's an angel, but there's someone with a pitchfork. He doesn't, you know. Maybe if we dress it up, he'll finally see that he there's some work that he's got to do. He's not doing it. It's unfinished business. So the night shift, they throw cold water on themselves and they stir up, make up a dream, and uh, it works it out because during the day you keep neglecting it, avoiding it, not be, not dwelling in what is, but being in what isn't, preferring what isn't. Okay, so uh, as the mind starts to become more calm, um, I don't mean now at sleep, but during the day, what starts to happen is it becomes quieter. The number of thoughts thin out. Some of you may have noticed by now. There are fewer thoughts, and the thoughts that come have less potency. Now, put in other language, what we're, we're doing is, we're not nourishing all those many compuls. There's a difference between the capacity to think, which is good. Humans think. And if you have a mind that works, be grateful. The capacity to think is valuable, no matter how, how much you read in meditation books, which seem to be uh, making short shrift of thinking. The capacity to think has its value. It's the compulsive thinking that's the problem. Just on and on, blah, 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 blah. Endlessly, since since who knows when? Since we learned how to speak. And repetitive, the same apprehensions over the same person you're going to tell off for the last 15 years. They're, they're already they've already gone to the other side, but you're still going to tell them off if they were only they died before I could tell them off. And everything else is going to too if you don't you know catch up with with now. So. There's so many uh, thoughts we put ourselves down and we say, no, that's not true. I'm wonderful. No, you're not. You're awful. And then your mommy comes in and daddy comes in and your boss comes in. The kids come in over oh, again, deep ruts in the brain, fatigued, exhausted from this squandering of worrying planning, apprehension. Then I can't stand this anymore. Making up some cockamamie. Is that okay? That's not a dirty word, is it? <laughs> Reality. This is an HBO, so I can't curse. Normally, I'd be, every other word would be cursing. Sorry. I know it's not very Dharmic, but I'm not. I'm a master of wrong speech. Matthew can attest to that. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I'm not going to change. I don't care what the Buddha said. Okay. Okay. So, what starts to happen is, uh, these uh, compulsive ideas and notions and memories are just over and over and over. If you don't feed them, they start to lose their potency. And they start to lose their, if you uh, get caught in them, which is typically what we do, we're nourishing them. We, they're alive and well. Oh, great. Come on down. Identify with me some more. I love it. That's their food. But if you stay with the breathing, they're still coming on and, well, where's my food? I'm with the breath today. Sorry. But what about me? Too bad. You know. <laughs> and they start getting weaker and they start becoming less of a problem. All this, you have more energy. Part of why you have more energy is you waste less subtle psychic energy on these compulsive uh, mental uh, fabrications that come up over it. It's just like a dream machine again and again and again. Okay. Now, so that's you start to see that and that you start to see the limitations of compulsive thinking you become less you become much more sensitive your reflexes pick up you can see it happening and you, you no longer get caught so much which you're where we are because we're unconscious <clears throat> and as you stay with the breathing in out in out suddenly s- some peace and some joy comes upon us we say duh I get it when I'm uh, with the breath which is not a word It's not a memory. It's just an expression of being alive, and it's happening right here, right now. We're practicing that. And we temporarily, we give the thinking mind a break, a rest. It feels good because as you become more absorbed and and as it brings some peace and some joy, you naturally become interested in it because you you yourself know it's of some value. It's not because Matthew said so, I said so, the Buddha said so, Buddha Dasa said so. It's such Sure, to begin with someone has to say so. On my own I never would have thought the breath had any, you know, it's just the breath, why waste time on that? Unless you have a cold, and you know, you do something to it. It turns out that such a simple uh, uh, technique of just being aware of the breathing, which preceded the Buddha by thousands of years, um, it brings something lovely to consciousness. And as you, you see, I see, unbridled thinking exhausts me when I just enter into just this breath, in and out. Hey, this feels good. Then you want to do it. You don't need cheerleaders like us so much. Coaches, you know, come on, you can do it. You know what we do. Okay, So then the practice starts to grow because you're not, that's the best samadhi, is interest much better than techniques. If you're naturally, just think of what you love to do. You don't need to take a workshop on how to do it because you want to do it. It's, it's an urge that comes from love. And, believe it or not, some of you may not because, you, you know, it's the beginning first few days. It's Many people don't wouldn't believe what I'm about to say. You can come to love the practice. But really what you're loving is not the practice. You're loving being alive because the practice is enabling us to experience being alive intimately, directly. We feel it. And it's preferable to walking around in a half stupor, which we don't know we're doing, or having so much unnecessary suffering going on because of an unexamined mind. Ignorance. The Buddha, the root of suffering in the Buddha's scheme of things is ignorance, one meaning of which is ignoring. We ignore what's going on, so we pay for it. What if we turn it around, start paying attention? That's part of the logic of the practice. Okay, so we've been doing that. And let's say, uh, and also uh, establishing ourselves in the breathing and in the sitting. uh, You can use a number of different metaphors for it. One might be it's an anchor. You develop an anchor. Uh, That is something that you can come back to again and again because the breath is recurrent. It's always there. And... So, temporarily, you have something to—or you could call it home ground. That's another—it's the same thing, or sometimes uh, the ancients talked about acquiring a seat. Maybe you've heard this term. It's not just plopping your butt down on a cushion or a chair or bench. That means when the sitting becomes—you're <clears throat> really established in it, because the breath, the mind, and the body become unified, and. It's a solid feeling of being at least physically present, which is a place that gives us from which we can then move on to the next, the second part of the condensed method. Uh, So that's what I'd like to do now. So that now, uh, assuming at a certain point, and uh, look, that varies from one person to another. If you were to spend the entire rest of the week just on what we've been saying since day one, since Sunday evening. That wouldn't be a waste of time because you'd be establishing a nice foundation contributing to that. But the full practice Oh, I said that wisdom comes up anyway. Uh, that, for, that wisdom, that's wisdom when you start to see how you waste energy with unnecessary unskillful thinking. It's unskillful. It pre- it's sapping you of energy, some of it causes suffering, and then you see, I get it. That's, that's not worth nourishing. You let it die. You unlearn it, in a sense. And just being present to this in-breath, this out-breath, it is worth learning. So that you're now more and more inclining the mind towards living wisely, towards moving towards ways of life, ways of thinking, speaking, and acting that are beneficial for you and, of course, the people in your life. Whether well, you like it or not, how you are is how you, what you bring to everyone else. No matter what your ideology is, it can be very holy. But it's not going to be any better than the, the truth of your consciousness, the quality of, of what's in here. Okay, so now the second mode of practice is um, where uh, we take Uh, This is the fourth foundation, which is the wisdom foundation, and in particular uh, this is how it reads in the Buddha's teaching. Uh, This is how it's used in the condensed method. We have the body. The second foundation are feelings. I have to briefly describe them. They all come up, so we don't have to dwell on them that long. Feelings here are not emotions, like a sound comes in. If it's chirp, chirp, probably a a little smile comes on your face. If it's a big truck lumbering down, you know, maybe there's a bit of a grimace. I thought I got out of the city. Why do do they allow those trucks to pass a meditation center? I paid good money to be here, okay? So, uh, and we have no control over it. It's our conditioning. Two people can hear the same sound, and one is repulsed and the other one doesn't care. And it's not through attitude. So, and same with smell. Some people love certain uh, fragrances, some can't stand it. Same with sight. Sights, we see certain things, some people find it beautiful, some don't. Touch, the body, Uh, all the sense doors, in short. And in the Buddha's teaching, the mind is also a sense door. Some of the things that come through the mind don't feel good. The immediate instant instant reaction is, uh, in the scheme that the Buddha puts forward, it's either pleasant or positive, or negative, unpleasant, or neutral. A lot of it is neutral. And when it's positive, we tend to want it, and we tend to want to hold on to it. When it's negative, we want to get rid of it. We want to annihilate it, get away from it. When it's neutral, we tend to feel nothing is happening. We get bored and fill it up with our fantasies, with what should be, what used to be, all that other stuff. So that's the second one. That is the way things feel instantly. The third one is the mind itself. Very, very important and interesting. In the Buddhist scheme, it's often... Um, well, it's whatever turns up, whatever emotion... What, here, mind doesn't mean just thinking. Images, moods, emotions, like, dislike... Plan, any, uh, any mental formation that you can think of, that's mind. Okay. Now, um, in the Buddhist scheme of things, there are three are in particular emphasized. The wanting mind, that's the more popularly known as greed. I don't like the term because it's a bit uh, uh, righteous and judgmental. But it's when the mind is in a state of, it's always wanting. Gotta have, I want this, I want, I want, I want. And when it's extreme, it's pictured in Buddhist iconography as a, someone with a tiny little mouth and a huge belly. And so whatever they can never get enough food, no matter how much they get. It's such a tiny little mouth, and the belly is always not getting enough. But that's just, you know, a metaphor, or whatever. Uh, so the, the mind that's wanting, wanting, and that, that isn't so pleasant. And then we get what we want, and we feel good for about 10 seconds. Then we go online and we see something else where there's a bargain, we order that. And then, you know, we, and it arrives and we, the bell, someone rings the bell and the guy in the brown outfit delivers to you and they don't even ask you to sign anymore, I think. You just hand it to you with a smile and a package. Is this for me or is this for two or three apart? No, it's for you. Rosenberg? Yeah. He said, this is for you. It can be anything, but it, you've got a package. You go into the house, you unpack it, it's exciting, scissors, cut it open, you look at it, you put it on. Feels great for 11 seconds. Then you get a little longer. You get used to it. It becomes obstinately familiar. Then you got to go on the line again and find something else a new outfit, a new health food, a new something, anything. (laughs) So that quality of mind. Okay, then there's the, the not wanting mind. That's the other half of it. I don't want that. Oh, yuck. It's aversive, it hates, it's disgruntled, it's pessimistic, it doubts, it's critical of everything, and everyone has, I think, maybe you, uh, maybe when you came into, the, into life you didn't get a full compliment at the supply room, but most of us have the wanting mind, the not wanting mind, and then the ignorant mind, the mind that is confused, dull, dark, duh, what's going on here? Or it thinks it's quite clear, but it's really think the thinking is erroneous. It's not. It doesn't match the facts of life. Okay. So, and they and it's opposites. The opposite of the not, of the wanting mind would be contentment. The mind is just happy to be. It doesn't need to get something in order to feel happy. And then the opposite of the not wanting the aggressive is love. So this is not the absolute the kind of love that has no opposite which is part of when meditation gets deep. It is not something that's conditioned at all. There is love, but we know that love. It's all the There'd be no songs if it weren't. There'd be no movies. There'd be no plays. Uh, I love you, honey, but if you don't love me back, I'll kill you. <laughs> uh, that love, that comes and goes, doesn't it? Is it just my life? <laughs> an, but finally, sometimes people say this wisdom path uh, it's awfully cold, and uh, I say, well, what is meditation really about? This, the, it's an explosion of love, but it's a different kind of love. It can be expressed in personal terms to someone that you love, but it also, it's something that just is. It has no opposite. And that is in, innate, but that comes it is part of the silence when we get deeply and re- learn how to reside in the silent mind, and that's where this practice is moving so but in the mind, we get to know these different states, and the challenge is, is to watch them and watch them arise and pass away. so the first one is uh, wanting and uh, not wanting and then being content. the second one is not wanting and being, in a sense, affectionate and okay. The third one, the opposite is, the uh, delusion, is clarity. The opposite is clarity. When the mind is very, very clear and it sees what this is, what that is, what that isn't, it's accurate. That, of course, is the hallmark of Vipassana. Okay. Now, the second mode of practice, and I can just touch upon it tonight, the first sitting after breakfast. Yes. Tomorrow, there'll be a guided meditation which will uh, hopefully help us all enter into the practice of this second uh, mode of the condensed method, which is two steps. In this mode, you've already established yourself to some degree of having some degree of calm and stability, some degree. And situated in that... Uh, in uh, in that condition, let's say bodily, and also the mind is more stable, you will watch the arising and the passing away of every mind state, every condition of the body, its insight into the impermanent changing nature of all forms. That's one of the key kinds of insights in the Buddhist teaching. The implications of seeing impermanence are endless. One of the main reasons we suffer is because we're living in a world that isn't the way we want it to be, we get fixated and conditioned and uh, attached to certain ways how it should be. And life just insists on being the way it is. It just rolls on. And sometimes it's the way we want it to be. And can we guide it a little bit? Sure. And it's not that impermanence or change. uh, It's also uncertain. We don't know what are the... It's full of surprises, isn't it? It's sometimes good news. Suddenly you're in pain and it's gone. You feel better. Uh, The the heat passes and suddenly it's cool. So things are changing and they just are what they are, but there are certain conditions that if you're alive it becomes a lot easier uh, to learn how to how to respond rather than, than react. As I'm using react here, it's mechanical. It's conditioned. We react to things based on our history. How we were brought up, the schools we went to or didn't go to, how this rabbi taught me, that nun taught me, and how this professor in uh, uh, the army, and all these kinds of things, and then our own life experiences. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, as we sit, no matter what turns up, whether it's of the body, whether it's of the mind, let's say uh, different moods different thoughts, different images in the mind, sounds. Just watch it all arise and pass away. Now, it's not so easy to do because um, in order to be able to do it, you have to free yourself from this tremendous attachment we have to content of like and dislike. I like this, I want it to be here. I don't like this, I want it to go. Because what we're seeing is a process that's underlying everything. So, if life, indeed, is going through all these changes and we insist on it being a certain way, there's bound to be suffering. It's a head-on collision. Now, if you think back... I may go over by five minutes or so. Um, if you think back, in the, just the simple sitting and breathing instructions, what was emphasized is the art of allowing Letting the breath happen and learning how to be awake to it, no matter what quality it assumes. And quite related is the art of receiving. Being present, not groping for or running after or trying to search and find, but just... And here, of course, the breath and the body help us relax, settle in, in the body and in the mind, and allow everything, allow life to reveal itself. We've been learning how to allow the breath to reveal itself. That's relatively easy, even if you've, uh, to begin with it isn't because we're used to doing and correcting and fixing and use everything as a, as a stepping stone to something better. And here we're just saying, drop all that and just be. Just sit and whatever is there, that's it. It's fine. So it comes and it goes and we learn how to sit with it. Um, receiving means uh, we're learning how to, to, to be open enough and empty enough. I think I used the example, I'm not sure. Um, if I, my hands are full and you want to give me something, I can't receive it. Because I, I'm already, uh, my hands are full. If I've eaten, yes I did use the example, but I don't remember when or where, somewhere here. Um, if you've eaten a full meal and someone gives you the most delicious meal and offers it up, you don't have room for it. So, the mind is quite cluttered, it's hard to do, but as the mind calms down, it becomes more peaceful, more calm, more clear, and it's more able to receive that which life reveals to us. Now, that's, that's the attitude we've been developing just on breathing. Now we switch to a much more challenging realm. Can we allow the mind, which includes the heart, consciousness, can we allow it to reveal itself? Now, if you sit with no agenda, and that's crucial, we have no agenda. The breathing is a friend in this method, Anapanasati. So we're with the breath, but it's no longer exclusive now. It's always happening. And so it's nice to have, and from that place of sitting and breathing, and that's why we've preferred the whole body breathing to a much more focused, narrow, which is also useful. But in this pro- approach, where we have the whole body, it's much more the attitude is not so much uh, narrowing down and going deeply into something, uh, but opening up and broadening our capacity to receive whatever. It's a more global, comprehensive, all-inclusive attitude. And so we're learning how to sit without an agenda. That means just as with the breath, we had no I- we don't have. <clears throat> a way in which the breath is supposed to be, or at least we're learning how to not have it. If you've been doing lots of yoga and pranayama, you might have a lot of attitudes, so this is a healthy breath, this isn't, i got to change it. But then in this approach, we're learning how not to do that, to just sit and be and let everything reveal itself and let it um, live out its life cycle. in your, Consciously, remember, the key here is to stay awake as it's all... Uh, coming and going, arising and passing away. Okay, But now the challenge is, can we do that with fear? Can we do that with loneliness? Can we do that with joy? Can we just enjoy it? And then when it's gone, be with what's next. And a new one for most of us, can we beat that with silence? We don't value silence, and yet the direction of the practice. Silence here uh, is accompanied by space. The it's like we're operating in a tiny portion of the mind, a little corner of the mind, which we call me. And we're cultivating it. Most of us in this culture, we're interested in self-improvement. We're here to get a better self, sharp, you know, polish it off a little, be a little kinder, a little more generous, uh, clean up your speech pattern. That would be for me. And and so we're a better person. That's useful. That happens anyway. but. What makes this a spiritual path? It's not self-improvement. It's getting free of the clutches of the self. Seeing what what is the self that I seem to be working for. Protecting and uh, getting all kinds of things so it will feel good. And trying to get rid of things so it doesn't feel bad. Uh, And seeing that finally the root is the mistaken notion that this which we've created is us. And then everything is taken personally. The Tibetans call it self-cherishing. Not a bad term. Okay. Uh, I'm going to finish. There have been a number of questions uh, which I strongly resent. There are people who didn't like my uh, haiku. Or... (laughs) I don't resent it. But, you know. Uh, So let me explain it. This might be blasphemous. Maybe you're not supposed to... There are books now with commentary on haiku. I see them. And had I not read them, I wouldn't know what it's all about either. Um, where, where is happiness to be found? This whole journey is about that. If there wasn't some dissatisfaction, why would we come here on this hot day? It's, it's insane. So apparently, we think we're going to find some happiness here. Rots a ruck. <laughs> you can try. It's not here. Well, maybe it's in this breath you're talking about. Not really. Temporarily, sure. Well, maybe it's in the, in nature. Um, nature's great, but it's not even in nature. It isn't. I thought it was. Uh, maybe it's in food. Maybe it's in that new outfit that the guy in the brown suit just delivered in the package. <laughs> so where is happiness to be found? As we see, there is a kind of relative happiness to be found, but then it's the second line that, uh, that apparently drove a few people crazy. So I feel out of compassion. I have to explicated a little bit, <laughs> in the same place as as uh, sorrow. Um, when there's sorrow in the mind, that, in other words, that's a mind state. Remember, now we're in the, in the second mode we're using. some the, the mind is a little bit more fit from bin, being with one theme. And now we've opened it up so that it can be with whatever life produces in us as we sit and breathe. Um, so let's say some form of sorrow emerges whatever that form may be that whole family of different mind states which no one really wants. I mean if you we want we want to be happy, okay? Now, how could you find happiness in sorrow? Now first of all, sometimes the mind is happy. Fine, then you're aware of that. But the hard part in practice is learning how to be with what is <clears throat> when it isn't to our wanting. When it's loneliness, fear, and so forth. We don't like that. And the mind has become adept at making up stuff, dig, dig, reinventing the past, making up a future, fantasizing, turning on our favorite movie, whatever it is, anything but fully experiencing just the truth of how it is in this moment. So let's say for the, in this instance it's sorrow. Now, that's throw the word sorrow out. That's just a word. The word is a sign pointing to energy, that enables us to use the word and think we know what we're talking about to each other. We know it's something that none of us want, probably. Okay? But now throw the word out, because the word sorrow is a powerful conditioner. Is everyone, oh, I think sorrow is just great, that word. Every time I hear it, it makes me happy. So that's like throwing kerosene on a fire. So it's not the word, it's that, that energy of sorrow. Now, mindfulness or awareness or attention, whatever language you like, is also energy. Throw the word mindfulness out. Throw so the word sorrow and mindfulness out the window. Gone. So it's a play of energy. It's seeing energy. Mindfulness is, is energy. Otherwise, why? Otherwise, what's the point? It's not just a word. And that seeing energy touches sorrow, which is, let's say, a, a field of energy that we've invented the term sorrow in English for. Okay. Something happens, and that's the beauty of awareness. It's extraordinarily beautiful when you start to see it work over and over again, without force, without trying to accomplish anything. Just a gentle, uh, calm, and eventually it starts to become naturally even affectionate. You're caring for yourself. The awareness is you, the breath is you, the sorrow is you. You're a one-man-and-one-woman show. You're doing the whole thing. You created the mess, and you can get yourself out of it. Be a lamp unto yourself, okay, the Buddha said. Okay, so the energy of seeing touches the energy of sorrow, and something happens when the seeing energy touches the sorrow energy. Uh, we can explain it in various scientific ways, but it starts to um, to dissolve. It loses its potency, and a tremendous amount of energy that's been held captive in sorrow and all kinds of other states uh, is now released and it's free, and it's available to you to, to invest it some other way. Hopefully some of it, at least, back into the practice. I'm going to close with a, um, one of the best teaching I ever got on this, and it was one of the first teaching a long, long time ago, from one of my main teachers who was not a Buddhist. He was an Indian gentleman named J. Krishnamurti. and I worked with him off and on for many years, mostly on whenever I could. Um, very anti all organized religions, but he didn't hold that against me. So um, <clears throat> sometimes we would work with a small group of people, there were about six or eight of us. And this was a, in a, a, a little uh, kind of a conference hall across the street from the UN. He had just given a talk at the UN and we met two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. All of us. Uh, and th- we had a theme this year. The, th- the-, the year I'm talking about. The theme was fear. Let's, you know, if you want sorrow, it's, okay. it's going to be the same teaching. Let's say in this case it was fear, as I recall. Okay, so uh, it's the last meeting. We went from um, Monday all the way through Friday, and at the, there were about five or ten minutes left, and then everyone's going to go their separate ways. He was going to Europe, I think, or California, and I was coming back to Massachusetts. And suddenly we feel at the time that he gave this teaching, he was about 88 and suddenly we feel the old boy has lost it. He starts talking about, at lunchtime, friends took me to one of the most uh, expensive, beautiful jewelry shops on some, one of the streets in New York City. and was saying, what, "We're not here to learn about jewelry." And he starts talking about it. and they gave me a very, very precious jewel, one of extremely valuable and, and uh, valued and honored. And I held it in my hand. And we were wondering, what is it? was he talking about? At least I certainly was. And he said, and I looked at that jewel and the exquisite beauty, the way it was cut and how light came through it. And then I went right into it, deeper and deeper. And finally I went, came out the other side. And, he, and then he took the jewel, threw it away, and then he, he said, fear is that jewel. In other words, the reason... That, that peace is, and happiness is in the same place as sorrow, is that sorrow has taken up a lot of time, space, and energy. And the awareness does something to it. It releases that energy. And so it's, uh, in that sense, it's a jewel. And if you say that, it doesn't make sense in ordinary language. So all, that's why in Dharma language, a bad situation is a good situation. But that's only if you're willing to work with it in a new way it's not the way most human beings function. Bad situations you want to get rid of, escape, crush, anything. Here, we open to it, but we're also not drowning in it, nor are we avoiding it. We're learning how to allow it to just as with the breathing, to surface, to reveal itself and let it tell its story, but in the light of a non-judgmental awareness. Something happens when you do that. And so that's what finally takes us to the only place where real peace, real happiness, is available inside us. If you locate it in a place, even in a person who you love, uh, that's wonderful. It's best if we assemble the best conditions we have, including people who love us and who we love. But finally, um, here it is. It's just this. Okay, can we just have a few seconds? i just quiet. Silence, please. Thank you for your attention on this hot evening. Uh, I was hoping to give a teaching on, on one of the Buddha's teachings. The punchline is, Kill hot, kill cold. But I'll have to wait for another time. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see. It may be necessary. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash do